Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, coming to you from the past of 2022, because it is still December 2022 as we are recording this, even though you lovely listeners at home or in your car or working out or wherever you may be enjoying this podcast are uh, are in 2023, January 2023, or maybe even later. Um, I wish I had a better intro. I, I do these on the fly, and unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't come up with anything. You bailed so fast. You really just need to... You got to commit, man. That's the key. Um, I literally I, I said the why. wrong year at the end of Steam Cleaners. You just got to keep going. <laughs> well, offering me podcast intro advice from our lovely Los Angeles studios. It is my good friend, Chase Wassener. Chase, how are you doing uh, this evening on what is the penultimate day of 2022? You know, I'm doing really well. I I did just lose uh, a Mario Party game that was the unluckiest I have ever seen, uh, both for myself and my poor roommate. Uh, Just got absolutely hosed by a friend of the podcast, uh, Devin Pyrotechnics Young. Um, So that was a thing. But I am uh, consoling myself uh, with a nice drink in a mug that I made for myself. I made a highball glass as part of my Christmas uh, events back with my family in Colorado. And I am unreasonably proud of how it came together. I'm terrible with art projects. And so... Uh, the fact that I've had multiple people say, oh, did you buy that while you were over in Colorado? And I get to be like, oh, no, I made this actually uh, has been really fun for me. Um, so I'm doing great. It is a very lovely bug. It is a very, very lovely bug to look at. And I am very proud of you that you went outside your comfort zone and you did something you didn't think you were going to be good at. And you actually were good. The key yeah, good. is just to be anxious the entire time. Like, just to be terrified that if you don't constantly move it around the right way, that the balance is going to be completely off, and the guy who is teaching you how to do it is going to be uh, upset or at least disappointed in you. That was really the key for me, Uh, and that's my best advice to anyone who wants to try this out in their own hometown. Well, Chase may be enjoying a rum and coke in a hand-fashioned uh, highball glass. I am enjoying a lovely old-fashioned uh, with some local bourbon by Iron Smoke Distillery in Fairport, New York. And Chase, I think it was only fitting that we had cocktails to discuss Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, the second film from Ryan Johnson starring Daniel Craig as Southern Detective Benoit Blanc. And um, I'm sorry we didn't get to this to end 2022. I think that our other choice was a good substitute, but we absolutely had to get to this to 2023. We did not want this to get pushed down the release schedule or, or our viewing schedules. We wanted to get onto it the moment that we could. And Chase... Going into it, let's start at the beginning like we normally do. What were your expectations? What were your thoughts? We never covered Knives Out, so quick synopsis. What were your thoughts of Knives Out and what you expected from Ryan Johnson and company? Well, Knives Out, the original, was fantastic. I loved Knives Out. I I think it's very rare that we get a true original IP nowadays. 
so much of film, at least when you talk about the big films that hit the cultural zeitgeist, is all about using properties that people are familiar with in order to gain enough buzz to get people in the theaters so that they all give it the kind of attention that these large marketing departments are always looking for. And Knives Out was a little bit different, right? It's certainly a familiar formula. As someone who took a crime fiction course back in university, uh, this is very similar to the kind of Agatha Christie style of detective film. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, every case being unique outside of the detective with a cast of characters that are all on their own colorful adventures that you're having to interweave all these conflicting motives and story beats in order to try to uncover what really happened. I think that it's a great concept. It's a formula that works well. And putting Daniel Craig as the lead, as this Louisiana uh, detective in Benoit Blanc was a great choice. And so I went into Glass Onion with high expectations. You know, I really enjoyed the original film and I wanted this film to live up to that. I wanted this to be a series of films, especially since Netflix has already spent money uh, developing the next film in the series. I really wanted to see this film hit that level of expectation and then some. And when the movie theater started begging Netflix to let them show it in theaters, a thing that would have allowed us to do it last year, which is why I won't apologize to you, you listeners at home, should be mad at Netflix for not allowing it to be in theaters so we could have reviewed it on time. That's a choice that they made that I will not understand because it would have made a lot of money in theaters. It's the kind of thing people love to see at the holiday season, but, you know, I digress. Uh, I, I just felt like, well, the theaters clearly think it's a winner, right? They wouldn't have begged Netflix to let them release it uh, if they didn't think that it had that kind of opportunity and so I, I went in with high expectations and I'm not going to say that this is better than the original because I don't think that it is, but I think it's a very good sequel. And it's one that certainly has my hopes high for whatever the third film in the series is going to be. Well, there goes my fucking hot take. Way to take all the wind out of my Simpson chase. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm a little surprised because I also agree um, that I don't think it is as good as the original Knives Out. I, I And we will get to the point where I kind of make that uh, distinction when we get to that in the plot of the movie. Um, but yes, I had extremely high expectations. I had watched Knives Out, I would say, probably in the last two months or so um, again and, and was just reminded how much I, I truly liked it, um, how much fun that I had with it and that cast of characters and when... They were talking, oh, of course, there's going to be a second one, and it's coming out here at the end of 2022. It was definitely on my radar of something that I wanted to give a watch, whether it was going to be for the podcast or just by myself. And the cast of characters that they have, I am a huge Dave Batista fan, and to see him doing anything that isn't just, like, action movie-esque, obviously him as Drax in, in the Marvel franchise, um... The MCU has been kind of phenomenal, even though it is sort of, you know, an action role. It is still allowing him to kind of flex his acting and his comedic chops. And this was another opportunity for him to do it. So I had high expectations of that. Um, and as a whole, the cast, 
you know, really kind of speaks to me. And there's a little bit um, for everyone in here, whether you're just looking for, you know, some eye candy, whether you're looking for some comedy, whether you're looking for some more serious roles, or you're just looking for Daniel Craig's ridiculous Southern accent. There is a little bit for everyone. And, and Chase, let's just keep talking about the cast before we kind of get into the plot, because this is an ensemble movie. This is, this is a Daniel Craig movie, but at the end of the day, it's also an ensemble movie because there is no one that is so dominating in a scene that you're like, I absolutely must only pay attention to this person. There is this layering. And anytime there's these sort of soliloquies or, or conversations, dialogue going back and forth between one or two or three characters. There are these shots of all the other characters, particularly um, Leslie Odom playing Lionel and Catherine Hahn playing Claire, where once they're sort of all in a big group, they don't do as much talking, but they do a lot of reactions and there's a lot of facial work and kind of expressions to the words that we're hearing as an audience. Overall, what were your thoughts on the cast performance and was there anyone in particular that really stood out to you? You know, the fun of Knives Out as a franchise is that because you have these individual mysteries, you can have a bunch of different actors who can step up into these roles and really get the most out of them. And when I think about who got the most out of the time that they were given, Kate Hudson immediately jumps to mind. Uh, the Birdie J, the like politically incorrect supermodel, as Wikipedia puts it, uh, I, I think did a fantastic job of doing this kind of laissez-faire, like I should be able to say what I want without consequences for my actions. But I also have this kind of like hippie, live life in the moment vibe that prevents me from thinking ahead even for a single moment that is just fantastic it makes her such a fun piece to bounce off of from scene to scene and the moment where she uh is forced to acknowledge that the bangladesh controversy is because she thought a sweatshop was where people made sweatpants fantastic one of the greatest moments. I, I died laughing at that. That was such a, a good fun bit movie. of comedy there. Yes. She, and she did a great job with that. She found the comedy in a lot of small moments, just in the little reactions that she gave that really accentuated the character. So shout out to Kate Hudson. I thought you did a fantastic job. I thought Dave Batista did a fantastic job. You know, this is one of those, I, I watched this film with my parents, uh, both of whom um, enjoyed it, though they did not enjoy it as much as the original as well. Um, and I had to explain to them that Dave Bautista's character is a thing that grew over the course of the pandemic. Like that guy, that quote unquote men's rights activist um, is a figure that has grown in popularity during the pandemic. And Dave Bautista does a really good, fun interpretation of that, right? The, he always has his gun 24-7. Uh, he is putting this alpha male persona while still living at home with his mom. Like, it all hits well. And Dave Bautista, by the way, one of the most likable people working in Hollywood at this point. He had some really endearing quotes during the press tour about how he just loves pushing himself and trying different things. And he wants to act in all the different kinds of roles and all the different kinds of films because he just loves acting. And from what I've heard from people who work in the industry, he is a genuinely nice dude which is always fun to see. I love seeing people like that who treat smaller, you know, kind of service people in the industry well, uh, go on and do successful fun things and clearly have a blast with it. And Dave Bautista 
clearly loved doing this part. And I also want to give a shout out to Janelle Monet. I I I feel like I missed the boat on her being the actress that she has become. You know, the kinds of films that she's been in as a more leading role are the kinds of films that I don't watch. So I always think of her as a singer rather than as an actress. But man, she killed it in this role. The ability to play both sides of the twin sister role that she plays really well done. I I think that that's a hard balance to hit and to hit consistently and to be captivating from start to finish. And she did a really good job. I I was incredibly impressed. You know, she kind of fills the same role as the um, uh, Hispanic uh, assistant, the doctor's assistant in the, um, in the previous film. Yeah, the, the home health aide played by Anna Dermas. Thank you. I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, like the same same kind of role and does so brilliantly. Um, and so I, I, I thought it was great, man. Um, there are some other people who did well, but I, I'll let you highlight them if you want, because those are the three that really stood, uh, stole the show for me. Let's see. You're going to steal Dave Batista from me. I'm already going like, hey, I got to talk about Janelle Monet, but I don't really want to get into the sort of twist that happens in the middle and, and, and until we kind of get to that point. But yeah, I'll piggyback off the, J- the Janelle Monet. She did a absolutely fantastic job. And the way that when you're watching her performance, when she's first playing Andy, who, uh, you know, is, is the sister that was the partner with uh, with the uh, Miles Braun, the Elon allegory or Mark Zuckerberg allegory, the very cold, calculated, all of the facial movements and talking and then switching into the, the twin sister that they, you know, show towards uh later part the later half of the movie and all of those exact same scenes but you can see the glint of difference you can just see i i don't think they filmed those scenes like i don't think that's this you're watching the exact same scene i do feel like even though they replay it i feel like they recorded it two different times and and they said hey show show the audience that this is a different person that this isn't quite the exact same person that they saw the first time we showed the scene um and and honestly out of out of all of them we'll get to craig in a moment a little bit more but edward norton holy shit if you want to talk about portraying both sides of a coin when you watch it the first time you believe that he is this like kind of goofy kind of weird but he is this sort of genius and you're sort of enraptured in it and you don't notice all of the mispronounced words or misplaced words or that really what he's saying is a whole bunch of word vomit and that it actually means nothing until daniel craig benoit blanc towards the end of the movie breaks that that veneer and all of a sudden you're like oh wait a minute this dude is a fucking idiot He's actually just dumb. He's so fucking stupid. (laughs) And I fell for the exact same con that he has run on literally everyone else over the course of the movie. And Edward Norton plays such a great douchebag. Like, he's just so good at that kind of just being like, he's got a punchable face. 
He's just someone you want to punch in the face, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. And he does such an excellent job at that. And he did such a great job of building sort of some sympathy and, and the moment where he thinks that he's getting killed and, you know, the, the, the scared rabbit tendencies and hiding behind Daniel Craig and all of these things and not trusting anyone and going kind of crazy. And then like at the end, the fucking cold calculated, like, yeah, you can smash all my statues. I'm going to fucking sit here and drink this glass of red. And then at the end, I'm going to shatter the glass as well and say Mazel Tov and go, congratulations, you figured out my evil plan. Uh, what you going to do about it? Like, it's so, so fucking well done because he has to be a smarmy asshole in the best and worst way to sort of play both sides of that coin. Um, but of course... Beyond it being an ensemble piece, you have you have a number of um, kind of celebrity cameos throughout it. Uh, Stephen Sondheim, um, uh, uh, Stephen Sondheim, um, Angela Lansbury, Natasha Lyonne, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that are uh, playing Among Us with uh, Benoit Blanc via Zoom towards the beginning of the movie. Brilliant um, scene, by the way. Like, the idea that the detective is terrible at Among Us is so fun. Like, I, you know, it's one of those things where Among Us was obviously such a huge part of the pandemic, so it does its job of setting the scene for those of us who are too online. But also his frustration that this kind of mystery is the thing that he's bad at. It's great. It really adds a lot of character and makes Benoit Blanc really emphasizes how endearing that character is. Clue is a stupid game, according to Benoit Blanc. Um, other, I mean, you have the kind of like obvious, like, oh, TV thing happens. So like, oh, Jake Tapper, CNN has to show up. Um, my partner popped when Yo-Yo Ma made an appearance on screen. I had no idea who it was in the moment and had to like research it after the fact and be like, oh shit, that was Yo-Yo Ma. Okay, that's kind of cool. Um, and then just the real spot cameos, Ethan Hawke and Hugh Grant. Um, but at the end of the day, as much as it is sort of an ensemble film, um, there is the, the main character. This is a Daniel Craig, Benoit Blanc picture. And what what a fucking career for Daniel Craig coming out of James Bond. And as you put it yourself, kind of in your introduction here, a brand new IP with a character that he could play this character into like his 90s if he wanted to. That That is just how endearing and it's not action and it's all character work. This is something that, you know, Ryan Johnson, Craig can entertain us with for, you know, two, three decades, essentially. It's so fun, man. I Don't get me wrong. I like Daniel Craig as James Bond. We've, we've talked about uh, his last James Bond film and how much we enjoyed that. But I got to be honest, I don't think there was anything that Daniel Craig did in those series that was more iconic than his blue and white striped swimsuit that he brings to the pool in this film. It's fantastic. It is such a fun character. And I really like this idea of, like, look, I recognize that there are limits of what I can do as a detective. I can tell you the truth, but I can't solve all of your problems. I can go to the authorities with the information I have, but that's where my job ends. I am a detective. I'm not Batman. I'm not Batman. But, but I can hand you something and say, you know, if you happen to do something with that, that, that might be a good idea. You might have some fun with that. <laughs> 
and I just love that kind of dynamic to the character, right? Like he wants to do good. He wants to not just solve a mystery the way that Sherlock Holmes does, because he does have that Sherlock Holmes-esque itch. He needs that next case to keep himself occupied, but he's genuinely invested in trying to come to a conclusion in which the people who have been wronged get some amount of closure and that the people who are good at their core are able to get some sort of, if not reward for their actions, at least to get the truth that they deserve. Uh, you saw that empathy a bit with, uh, you know, Dharma's character in uh, the first film. And you see it a lot with the way that uh, Helen uh, in this film, uh, you know, the the sister handles uh, a lot of those, those little interactions of like, I can't protect you, but I really want to help. And, you know, maybe you should get drunk more often because you sure got a lot of information that I wouldn't have necessarily recommended you get that way. Like there are a lot of those kinds of endearing moments that make that character the kind of detective that, yeah, I could watch this for another 20 years and I would have a blast because it's the kind of detective that you want to root for and you want to see come to the conclusion. And it doesn't really matter if the cops are able to fully solve the case in the quote-unquote traditional way, right? It's the journey with him. And I give Daniel Craig a lot of credit in making a, a detective that is as captivating and interesting as Benoit Blanc is. This is very much, I think, a modern interpretation of the Pink Panther and of Jacques Cousteau. I think this is a, a modern take of that because, you know, the, the Pink Panther, sure, maybe it's a bit more comedic, right? And you're relying a little bit more on kind of some Mr. Bean-esque uh, sensibilities of sort of bumbling your way through, you know, danger and whatnot. And and at no point has Benoit Blanc really truly been in any danger over either of these two movies. I know there is, you know, a scene where he gets shot at in this movie, but he's not the target. He's really not putting himself in the direct line of fire, so to speak. He is handling what essentially are you know, uh, fam, you know, a family dynamic, a, a dynamic of a group of friends. He's not dealing with terrorists or a serial killer or anything like that. He is dealing with a kind of concentrated group of people and yeah, doesn't, doesn't pretend to be like he's anything more than he is. And in, you know, both of these instances is kind of stumbled into these mysteries. It's sort of been brought in as an unwilling participant, but he is more than willing to absolutely destroy your murder mystery party there, uh, Isles Braun, because let's face it. I think it was a little obvious that you were going to kill yourself with a crossbow. Like, Come on, what rich dude wouldn't want to die with a crossbow? It's literally how they killed Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. Like, come the fuck on. <laughs> um, and it, it is. There is a unique style to it. There is a creativity to all of this. There is... I. You bring up again the the pool scene where he's wearing this you know blue and white shirt, and I said to to my partner, I'm like, why is he wearing that in the pool? And she goes, well, maybe he's self conscious. And then you <laughs> see fucking Batista standing there and be like, yeah, I'm 
probably be fucking self-conscious to it. Dave Batista was standing there in a fucking speed. It is, it is masterfully done. It is so well done because he is such an endearing character and you want him to succeed. You want nothing bad to happen to him. You want him to solve the mystery at the end of it. And, you know, I think at times you almost don't want there to actually be something bad that has happened. I think you'd almost rather be like, oh, yeah, Dave Batista died because he picked up the wrong drink and it happened to have pineapple in it. But then you go, wait, wait a minute. We never found out what Miles Braun likes to drink. He never said like, oh, yeah, and I like a fucking, you know... Uh, I like mimosa or anything. Like, he never says what his drink of choice is. So you can artificially put that into your head that, like, oh, there might have been pineapple in that drink when you finally make that connection. And, like, oh, no, he actually did it to fucking murder him because he found out the secret that everybody, that he's, you know, that Miles has been hiding from everyone. And really the real reason he brought everybody out here was to celebrate and to gloat and to be happy that they didn't have to deal with uh, with Andy Brand and her uh, meddling anymore and he could go forward with his grand plans to solve humanity. I'm sorry, we've gotten really, really far ahead in the plot. So let's catch you all up real quick. Basically, what happens is Miles Braun is a Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk allegory here, and he invites a group of his closest friends to come to this island in the middle of the Aegean Sea in Greece uh, for a you know retreat that they normally have once a year. The characters that are there are um, are as follows: You have Claire Debella, played by Catherine Hahn, who is currently the governor of Connecticut and is running for the U.S. Senate. Leslie Odom is Lionel Toussaint, who is a head scientist for Miles' company. Kate Hudson as Birdie J, the politically incorrect supermodel. Dave Batista uh, playing Duke Cody, who is this men's right activist. Uh, his girlfriend, played by Madeline Klein, as Whiskey. Uh, there's also uh, Birdie J's assistant, Peg, played by Jessica Henwick, which if we're going to say there is any negative... Uh, criticism I can make of the movie is that I believe Henwick was wildly underutilized. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm a stan. I'm not gonna, you know, <laughs> I'm not gonna hide that. I like Jessica Henwick. You never uh, have to then... uh, uh, apologize for thinking Jessica Henwick is fantastic. That, that's She's a rule fantastic. we can set for the podcast. She's, She's great. Fantastic. And uh, Noah Segan, who is playing Daryl, who just happens to be living on the island because he's going through some things. Which, and the entire- great. I just want to point out real quick before you continue. Love that fake out. Love that he never ends up being relevant to the film. It is the perfect use of your red herring. Please continue. Love him so much. He reminds me of... The inclusion of erroneous in a funny thing happens on the way, uh, a way. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Other than the fact that erroneous ends up solving everything in that musical by Stephen Sondheim, but just to like he just randomly appears and is like, "Oh, don't pay attention to me, guys. I'm 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 not part of this. Don't worry about it." And I was waiting for him to be the solution. I was yeah. totally waiting for him to like have the answer and be like, "Oh yeah, I saw Miles like in in." so-and-so's room and he stole this red envelope and I went in there to grab it because I, I don't know, I just wanted to see what was inside it. Like, I was totally waiting for that moment and it the never fact happened. That Forget I'm Here was also intended for the audience and was not a fake out. Brilliant screenwriting. 10 out of 10. Amazing choice, Ryan. Well done. But anyways, so all these people and inexplicably, Benoit Blanc, 
the world's greatest detective, have been invited to this island to participate in a murder mystery party of Miles Braun's death. And he says, you know, you, you know, we're going to have some fun today and tonight I will be murdered and the game will have started and it will be up for one of you to decide um, who murdered me, what their motivations were, how they did it, so on and so forth. And then Benoit Blanc goes, well, what do we win? Which is fucking brilliant because <laughs> as soon as, as soon as Miles Braun's like, uh, you win an iPad, like, fuck it, who cares? Benoit Blanc immediately solves the entire thing and is just like, well, that was super fucking easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, and it turns out he wasn't even fucking invited. Miles didn't invite him. <laughs> it was really fun to see the fake out compared to the first film, right? Because the idea of like, oh, look, another anonymous invitation, like it would have been fine but it would have been repeating from the first film and you would have, you know, it would have been derivative, right? So the idea that he pretends that that's the case only to later find out that Helen came to him directly with the broken box and explains like, look, can you please pretend that you got this invitation because I I need you there to help me solve this crime is a really good twist. There, there's a lot of this film that is very smart in how it is constructed and it's figuring out the utility of those little details that really does go a long way every piece is there for a reason and if you're gonna do mystery films you need to have a strong understanding of how these elements work and i you know we we will have our criticisms of this film but i think that as far as understanding the set pieces understanding how to play with audience expectations based on what we know from the original film. I think this script does a good job. And that part right there is where I dock at points. I don't like that reveal. I don't, one, when it happened as early as it happened, I was really, really confused Cause I was like, okay, like she's, she, okay, cool. It's her sister that died. And now she's here pretending to be her sister to help Benoit Blanc solve the mystery. I didn't believe that Benoit Blanc would be okay with that. I didn't believe that he'd be willing to just like put a civilian in harm's way because he didn't do that in Knives Out. He inadvertently was putting the like the primary suspect in kind of the middle of the investigation but i i don't know it it just kind of was like oh that's that's what we're doing here okay um all right let's see where it goes and then like it kept going and it kept going and it kept you know giving us all this background exposition and then gives us the scenes where um, you know, the, the sister Helen is, is actually the person who is interacting with all these people and she's getting all the information behind and all that jazz. And then we get to her getting shot and the bullet being caught by her sister's journal, them faking that she died with a bottle of Jeremy Renner's hot sauce. Which, which is very fun. Just, it is funny. And like at that point, I'm like, okay, so they have to do the reveal that early so then they can do all the rest of this stuff so they can get to, you know, the actual who done it and who fucking did it. And then they like got to the moment where you're going to pull off the mask and be like, aha. And then the movie still kept going. 
you know, that that is the thing that I think holds this film back compared to the first film. I understand that you have to do setup for these kinds of films, right? You need to set the stage and understand who these characters are and what their motivations might be. Um, and unlike some of the dumbest people on the internet who may or may not have shared very infamous threads at this point about this film, I'm not going to say that spending an hour before a fake out that reveals that it was all a misdirection is a bad scripting choice. I think it's a good one. But I do think that there is a pacing problem with this film. And it's not a major one. It certainly didn't detract from my enjoyment of the film overall, but it is noticeable compared to the original, where the first hour things are pretty slow. And then you get to the reveal about Helen being a twin sister, and everything accelerates rapidly. And you get a lot of plot in a very short period of time. And then it kind of slows back down again because nothing can go as fast as the reveal unraveling all of these kinds of details about who she is and how they were all, um, how they were all interconnected with um, what Helen and uh, was doing in the background of all these different scenes. So it, it's just, it's unfortunate because I, I think that the attempt, like what, Ryan Johnson was trying to do here is commendable and something that I like seeing as a contrast of themes between this film and the uh, first film. You know, the first film is all about there being this obfuscation of what's at the center and they need to get to the heart of that. And Glass Onion is a film that puts all of these details front and center and points out that sometimes the simplest solution is correct, and we just don't see what's in front of us because of all these obfuscating details that get in the way of what is the obvious answer here. And I think that's a good idea. I think that the core of that is a good angle to take to make a film that feels different from what came before. I just feel like in trying to accomplish that goal, he took perhaps a less efficient path than how the first film addressed things. And as a result, you get this slow march in the first hour, uh, a hurry up with a lot of stuff in a short period of time, and then a slower period before we get to the final moments. And that final sequence is fantastic, but that, that kind of up and down, it, it could have been smoother. I think that's sort of the point is that the beginning part is supposed to be slower because it is the beginning of the mystery. It is the investigation, the exposition, the introduction to all the players. And you're trying to learn alongside, well, theoretically alongside Benoit Blanc about what is going on here. Why are all these people here? And he does, he plays a masterful job early on talking about, you know, the, the, um, Oh, what what is the line exactly? Um, I, Mr. Braun, I've learned through bitter experience that an anonymous invitation is not to be trifled with. That was not a Southern accent. I apologize. <laughs> um, but like, and there's like that that baits you. You are completely baited in there and being like, ooh, like I like it. And talking about you know how this is essentially putting a loaded gun on the table and then shutting off the lights, like. You you fall into it, and, and it, the suspense is starting to build. And then I feel like all the fucking suspense is just... 
all the air is let out the balloon when they do the cutback to Helen coming to Benoit Blanc. All of the suspense in the air is completely blown out of it because you're like, oh, okay. So, like, this, we're not here because Miles is going to be murdered. We're here because someone murdered the Andy. Okay. And then you come back, and, like, immediately as it comes back to the present, she then does the fucking dead person gasp. And you're like, oh, okay. Get it. Got it. All right. Cool. And then, like, slowly starts to accelerate again until you get to that big unveiling moment. And then again, even that, and I, I don't say this one negatively, but then all the air gets sucked out of the room again and the, the balloon gets emptied again because Blanc makes the realization like, oh my God, I'm dealing with a fucking idiot. It's been right in front of my face this entire goddamn time. <laughs> like, I give you too much credit. Well, and, and I will admit, I liked that bit maybe a little bit more than you did. I, I because did too. I like the idea that unlike the first film, this is a film in which you recognize how people are able to steer an, a narrative in their direction because they speak with confidence and they understand how to manipulate people's uh, memories, right? Like the, the obvious sequence is when he talks about, oh no, I can't believe that Dave Bautista's character, Duke Cody, grabbed my glass. Someone was clearly trying to poison me. And it shows a flashback that is different from how the film actually looked at the beginning. And Benoit Blanc points that out. Like, think about what your actual memory is. Is that what happened? No. In reality, he handed the glass over to Duke Cody. That's the kind of thing that a mystery film has to nail in order to make the theme of Glass Onion work. The idea that people's memories are easily manipulated and can lead to false positives is something that comes up in real crime all the time. Like, eyewitness testimony is notoriously terrible when it comes to actually identifying the person who did a crime and how certain details happened, because our brains are very malleable, and when a cop or whoever it is, a prosecutor, whatever, puts an idea in your head, it's very easy to mold your memory to the thing that they are feeding you. Because memory is nowhere near as strong as we would all like to think that it is. So I do think that that idea is really well played. I just wish that there was maybe more of an intermixing of those details the way that the first film had, right? The first film establishes uh, that character, you know, the the kind of equivalent of Janelle Monet's character here early on. And it doesn't set her in the Benoit Blanc assistant role until about the same point of the film. But the character and who she is and how she relates to these other characters is established by that point. And the fact that the film has to kind of come to a halt to catch us up on what's really been happening is a little bit of a bummer. I feel like that could have been done more smoothly, ultimately. But I don't hate where it ended up, and I don't. I, I really like what the theme overall is trying to be. I, I just think it could have been a little bit smoother in its delivery from point A to point B. But again, that's the point. Because it's not smooth. It's a fucking idiot's plan. <laughs> like, there's, there's that joke. What's the difference between a smart criminal and a stupid criminal? The smart ones aren't in jail. 
Like, that's literally what this is, is that this fucking dumbass, this idiot, this moron was like, cool. All right. You have the proof that completely undoes everything that I've been doing for all this time. Like, yeah, of course, I'm going to come fucking kill you for it. And then gets caught. Like, he knows he got caught, but he relies on the fact that, like, these people need him, that he, and he's already, you know, baffled them with bullshit before, that he can convince them again. Like, Batiste, come on, Cody, you didn't see me, buddy. You saw some other blue car. Like, that, it's not that difficult to convince someone who doesn't want to see the truth not to see the truth. It's not hard. And the fact that it is so abrupt is because that's exactly what happens. It reminds me of that episode of How I Met Your Mother, where it's like the bad habits. Like, oh, you don't notice Lily chews loudly or chews with her mouth open. And then all of a sudden it breaks, it shatters, and now Marshall sees that bad habit constantly. And once you see it, you can't get rid of it. It's there forever. That's exactly what happened here. And it has to be so abrupt because he has to go around to every single person and go, so like, you know he did that, right? And even when they're like, well, no, you know, I I, I didn't see the nap. Like, they don't believe it at that point. None of them believe it at that point. None of them believe a goddamn word they're saying to try and protect Miles after it's like, yeah, you fucking killed her. There was the proof. And he's like, uh-uh, the proof is gone. So did anybody really see anything? And they're like, no, I didn't. But really I did. But no, I didn't because I need to keep you giving, I need you to keep giving me money. And then it is that additional shattering that, uh, that Helen continues to do of all the glass statues that finally gets stuck in everyone's head of like, shit you're right like fuck all this let's just let's just let's just shatter all of this right now and really get to what's inside of this thing and benoit blanc it's a great moment when he you know basically tells her like you know remen like i can't help you from here right like he he destroyed the evidence that proves his crimes uh, a reveal that by the way points out how fucking stupid this billionaire miles braun is and I, I think is the kind of unmasking that, um, you know, more maybe conservative viewers are going to struggle with, but feels really, really strong in the wake of people like Elon Musk and how this Twitter stuff is gone, right? Like, the idea that you can be good at one thing, but that doesn't actually make you a genius at all these other things is a really smart point to make. And I do think that the, you know, Benoit basically being like, look... I, I've gone as far as I can go, but here's some courage and a reminder of why your sister did what she did and enabling everything that came after is such a like brilliant way of highlighting two issues that we have in society, right? One is that the billionaires that exist in our system are very rarely held accountable for their actions. Um, if you don't want to get into the Elon Musk side of it, let's look at the Sacklers, right? You can do a whole bunch of damage, but if you have enough lawyers who are very expensive and very good at their job, you can get out of a lot of responsibility for a lot of harm that you've done, right? We see that all the fucking time. And Miles Braun burning the napkin and being able to use his power and influence to convince the shitheads, as they are called, 
uh, by the end of this film uh, to keep going along for the ride feels very natural as a result of how power and influence guides people towards certain decisions, even if they are not, you know, the kinds of moral, correct decisions that these people would otherwise be inclined to make. And also, it gives us the catharsis of showing how those people are not as invulnerable as they want to believe that they are. Like, Miles Braun watches as these glass statues get destroyed, and he has no problem with it at first. He's like, you know, he's having, like, he's enjoying it to a certain extent. He's laughing at it. He's like, you know, go ahead, get it out of your system or whatever. And then everyone else joins in, and he's a little bit nervous, but like, okay, whatever. It's no big deal. And then it becomes the clear, the hydrogen being exploded into the system. And suddenly he realizes that something he cares about, his own self-interest, could actually be hurt. And then he realizes that the sabotage, his own fucking ego, allowing him to have that kind of uh, safety button uh, to remove the uh, security on the uh, Mona Lisa, a, a thing that is kind of on the nose in terms of theming, but still removing that and being able to burn that kind of painting to the ground such that he will be held accountable, not for the murder, but at least for the damage to a painting that people care about and the reveal that the thing he was trying to push is dangerous. That feels really satisfying in a time in which there are so little that actually holds people like that accountable. And I'm not saying... I, there are things I'm not going to say on a podcast as far as encouraging certain behaviors, but I do think it is nice for a film, a, a, a medium that is designed to give us an ability to experience certain emotions in a way that is not damaging in real life in the same way that obviously destroying the Mona Lisa and blowing up a building like that would be. I think it makes a really fascinating point and a very cathartic point about how even these people who feel like they are immune to the consequences of their actions can be hit. And when you hit them in the right spot, there is a feeling of satisfaction and closure, perhaps to a certain extent. Uh, something that uh, if you, uh, you know, we, we see rarely, but is always satisfying when it happens. Uh, for the listeners at home, you can purchase the Anarchist Cookbook at your local Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> You're goddamn me. right, you can. <laughs> uh, no, I and I do think that that ending is pure catharsis, not just for not for us the viewers necessarily, but it does help. But for Helen herself, because everybody's right. Like fuck it, dude. What what's gonna happen at this point? Where's the proof? of anything that has happened what can she really do to miles she even you know kind of mentions earlier on like he's got an army of lawyers like what what hope does she really stand and miles even taunts her like your fucking sister couldn't beat me like what do you think you're gonna do against me and she does the only thing she can do and she can make him immortal the very thing that he wants but for all the wrong reasons. And it is such such an excellent, you know, Chinese proverb curse. You know, I hope you get everything that you wanted from life. And that's actually a curse. 
is that, you know, I hope everything you want comes to you and everything that you deserve comes to you. And at the end of the day, that's what he deserved. He deserved to have his name synonymous with the Mona Lisa in the most negative way possible. Let us ignore the fact that based on the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code series, that basically the French government would totally re like pretend that that actually never happened and would just have a fake Mona Lisa on display for the rest of time. And no one would ever know that he actually destroyed the Mona Lisa. Like let, let's live in that fantasy world for a minute and allow us to believe that he would actually be held responsible for those actions. Uh, but he probably wouldn't be because it'd be way more embarrassing to the French government that they like handed out this priceless artifact to some rich dude because he gave them some money. Um, but yeah, there is a finality to it that is very fun. And even Daniel Craig at the end is just like, did you get him? Yeah. All right, cool. Let's go home. Him smoking a cigar with the stoner brother who's pretending yep. not to be there at the end yep. is a wonderful <laughs> shot. It's just like, Perfect. look, I threw uh, the gasoline here. Well, not even threw it like. He gave a tool, but at the end of the day, it is Miles Braun's fault for everything that comes after. And he gets to enjoy that while the law has its limitations, Helen doesn't. And that's a really fun element to add to the end here. Um, I, it's just, it's one of those things. I think a lot of this film is really good. So I want to give it a higher score than I think I'm ultimately going to give it. But... I, I think that it's one of those films where even if it's not as sharp as I wanted it to be, it certainly does enough to make me think that the series is in good hands and I can't wait for the next one whenever that comes out. I, I, I love the concept of this series and I think that it is in good hands with a good understanding of how to make each film different from each other that is going to pay off dividends in the long run. So, so Chase, I mean, since we're talking about the next film already... Give me a, a, an actor and an actress or two actors. Give me two people, two folks that you would like to see in the Knives Out uh, a third movie. Oh, God, that's really tough for me because I am terrible at remembering people's names. Um, Kristen Stewart would be fun. I think there are Ooh, a lot okay. of different roles you could give Kristen Stewart in this kind of film. Okay. That would be fantastic. Uh, Michael B. Jordan. Oh, I, 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 whether he's the, the villain here or whether he is a red herring, I think he could play someone with questionable motives uh, that could be really fun to bounce off of. Uh, those are my two. I, I think both of them are, are actors uh, who can really play uh, dynamic characters with strong personality traits that could lead you in one direction or another based on where the mystery goes. You fucking stole Michael B. Jordan from me. <laughs> fucking stole him from me. That that was the first first name I thought of was like Michael B. Jordan. I want to see Michael B. Jordan in this. Um, I'll I'll say um I'll say Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence or um or uh, um Sophie Turner. Okay. I I think those I because they kind to me they kind of could play like a similar role. Um. You know, in, in that kind of like a Birdie J style type of role, or they could be, you know, the more Janelle Monet, Ana Darmas, kind of the the helpful, you know, the the uh, co protagonist uh, to Benoit Blanc. But Michael Michael B. Jordan, I I want him to be the villain. 
I so <laughs> badly want Michael B. Jordan to be in this as a villain, and maybe just Idris Elba, just because I want to see more Idris Elba. I'll throw sure. Idris Elba out there as my as my you know uh, male supporting actor for this. Um, but Chase, we could we could play casting director all night with people that we would like to see in this film. Kit Harrington would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, I'm gonna force you. I'm gonna put a gun to your head here. Okay. Open up the glass onion, and what is your score? I give this an 8 out of 10. Uh, I give the original a 9 out of 10. I give this an 8 out of 10. Uh, I think that there's a lot that works really well here. I definitely recommend the film. I had a lot of fun with it. And I think the people who are being harsher to it are... I I, I never want to say that people's opinions of the film are are like quote-unquote wrong or whatever, but I, I do think there is a harshness that comes from higher expectations in which uh perhaps uh people are judging it for what it's not rather than what it is i think that what it is is quite good um and i think that there's a lot here that works very well it's not quite as sharp and not quite as crisp as the first film and that's okay i i think it's still a very good film and i think it's absolutely worth your time and i can't wait for the third one because i think that there is a clear desire here to bring in different types of characters while still understanding what makes mysteries good and identify different themes that you could uh, hit on. And I love the fact that Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson have both said they never want to stop making Knives Out movies. I hope they never do. I hope we get 20 more of these. I think it's fantastic concept, well executed, and I just really look forward to seeing what they do next. I really can't wait for like the 25th anniversary Blu-ray collection that has like 30 of these movies in it. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Um, I also agree with you. I would have given Knives Out a 9 out of 10. Here, I'm going to give this one an 8.5 out of 10, Um, which kind of hurts me. I I really do want to kind of give it a 9, but I, I just can't because I don't like it as much as the the first knives out and that's extremely nitpicky but i think it's just because i didn't like this form of mystery in terms of including a second person that is a you know a winning participant into the investigation and is a co-detective with benoit block nothing that there's anything wrong with that um nothing that i don't think it's entertaining or anything but i just it wasn't what i expected and like what you said, you know, with with an extremely successful first movie, that means expectations are going to be heightened for the second movie, and it just barely doesn't reach what the first movie uh, accomplished to me, but it is still a very, very, very good movie. Highly recommend it. Um, I would love to see Daniel Craig get nominated for an Oscar for it, but I, I don't think it'll ever get there, and that's kind of a disappointment. Uh, but Chase... I have, I have, I worked on a little project here at the end of 2022 that I don't think we've really clued the listeners into. Uh, I, I compiled all the results from Final Cut and from Steam Cleaners. And since we're coming into the new year and, and this film did not hit a nine, I, I figured I should give some stats from last year. Oh boy. Because... Out of the 25 films we watched, you and I both gave nine films a nine or higher. Oh, wow. 
there was only two films that you and I disagreed on giving nines. I gave Bullet Train a nine and a half and you gave it a seven and you gave Enter Galactic a nine. I gave it a seven and then a half. Those are the only two films that we both didn't give at least nines to up in the upper echelon. Um, there was only one film that we both gave tens to. I'm not even going to make you guess it. It was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, and you gave three other films tens. Uh, you gave uh, you gave Power of the Dog a 10, which I happened to give a 9. You gave Drive My Car a 10, which I gave a 9.75 because fuck that ending. <laughs> and uh, you gave Toy Story 3 a 10, which I gave a 9 because I watched Toy Story 3 and 4 in the wrong order. <laughs> and Glass Onion has not hit the vaunted uh, 9 here on Final Cut but I'm I'm excited to see how many more films uh, we'll we'll put into that you know uh, vaunted 90th percentile uh, with our suggestions. And I would say pretty much every almost all the films we watched last year, I think we would suggest uh, outside of a, a a couple. I'd say there's probably like three, maybe four that we wouldn't have suggested over the course of the year. Uh, Chase, now that we are here at the end. Where can the lovely listeners find you on the internet? You can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Uh, and of course, don't forget to tune into Steam Cleaners every week that we're not doing this, uh, where we talk about some games that have really caught our attention. Um, I, I think that it's been a, a really fun uh, you know, year plus of Final Cut, and I'll, I'll share the uh, spreadsheet in the description of this. And if I don't, go yell at me on Twitter and I'll make sure I add it um, because it's really fun to kind of track this stuff and see what films really caught our attention on that extra level. Absolutely. And I think it's really kind of fun to look back and go like, Oh yeah, I did watch that last year. And Oh yeah, we did talk about it and see all the films that I would have watched uh, that I wouldn't have watched that I did last year, like Spencer, a film that we definitely both watched. It definitely happened. <laughs> we watched that movie with Kristen Stewart in it. Uh, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL. I think Chase and I have figured out what movie we're going to be watching in two weeks. I don't know much about it, so I'm going to go research it on Wikipedia before I give it a watch. And we come back in two weeks to watch and discuss said movie. And until then, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>